0: Canada Day. I'm glad you're joining me. My name is Mike Campbell. I mean, this is a very special day. There are no shortage of things to talk about, but I want to focus on what's being called, I think it's the biggest story coming out of 2022 into 2023, and that's the biggest peacetime national security crisis in Canadian history. I mean, the Communist Party of China has been enacting a specific plan to undermine our democracy, so discord in the country. I think that's understating it, but I promise Terry Glavin, who is one of only a small handful of journalists who've been pursuing this story for years, will bring us up to speed. He's not going to understate it. I mean, the threat to Canada finally seems to have got most of our attention, but what's clear is that for some people, party loyalty is trumping their commitment to the country. and They don't want to hear about it. They want to move on from the story. And as we hear more and more details, I don't think that's a surprise. But for anyone who loves Canada, feels fortunate to be living here, Ignoring the biggest national security threat to our country and generation is not an option, so I'm not going to. And I'm excited that Terry's going to join me in just a few minutes. But first, one of the recurring themes over the last couple of years that I think Canada is a perfect time to discuss is that Canada is broken. Last year, a Meru public opinion poll found that 66% of us fear for the future of Canada. While 62% say they have lost faith in the ability of the country to keep peace, order, and good government in place. Maybe more shocking is the finding that a majority of Canadians, it was 52%, believe the country is, in quotes, beyond broken. It is not, it's just not viable in the way it's currently constituted or being governed. After the 2021 federal election, Meru Public Opinion found that 77% of respondents thought that Canada was more fractured than ever. And it's not just about the response and the drama around the pandemic or the truckers' convoy. Because just before the pandemic actually began, Angus Reid found things like 64% of Canadians said that politicians couldn't be trusted. And I think that gets more to the point. The question is, Canada broken? No, I think it's really more about politics. Maybe not surprising, given the goal of politics is to divide the country for political gain. The demonization of the truckers' convoy from the outset was looked upon as a political opportunity, while the government, the NDP and the media allies were stoking fear and division, with a litany of accusations that you must be apprised of have now proven to be false. Uh, vaccine mandates, another example. They were rejected at first by the Prime Minister, or I think correctly stated in quotes, more extreme measures such as vaccine mandates could have real divisive impacts on community and country. I mean, he was right. <laughs> the polls in late spring and summer 2021, though, suggested that mandates could be used for political advantage, so presto they happened. Here's one of the key quotes over the year. Liberal MP I said liberal MP, head of the Quebec caucus at the time, Joel Lightbound, went on record stating, in quotes, from a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. Think about that. A conscious decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. Well, it worked. As H.L. Mencken famously stated, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it good and hard. I mean, it's not like we're a shortage of opportunities to divide Canadians, whether it's on gender or East versus West or French versus England, rich versus poor, straight versus gay, and exacerbated, but I think an underlying disrespect for people who have opposing views. But I think what's a little different, though, is an overriding moral undercurrent that basically says my side's good, all the other sides are evil, is evident. I mean, there's so many examples. I'm thinking back to former Governor General Julie Payette. She was the Governor General at the time. She gave a speech in November 2017. She broke protocol and she politicized her remarks. But the point was she dismissed anyone who, for example, believes in God or questions any aspect of the climate change agenda. I mean, the disrespect for people with alternative views, I think, is what plays a major role in fostering the feeling That Canada is broken. I mean politics may well be broken, heck, but we're told non-stop. I mean come on, we're at war with other Canadians on so many issues and those on the other side are evil. I mean whatever happened to honest respectful disagreements? But here on Canada Day this weekend I invite you to consider that Canada and Canadians are so much more than these political divisions. Canada is not those bad people from the East or bad people from the West. It's not embodied by men versus women or climate advocates versus so-called deniers. I mean, Canada is far more accurately affected than the millions of Canadians. It's our friends and our neighbours who volunteer in our communities. Maybe they're the hockey coach. Maybe they're a food bank volunteer. You know, I see them lend a helping hand all the time with people with intellectual disabilities and Special Olympics. I'm thinking of the people who plunge with me into the icy cold waters of English Bay for charity. I'm thinking of the frontline workers who, especially during the early months of the pandemic, went to work on behalf of all Canadians when so little was known about the danger they faced. I think Canada is far more accurately reflected by the tens of thousands who are first to lend a hand when you have uh, disasters like the wildfires, when they threaten communities. I think back 10 years ago to the flood in Calgary. You know what? Volunteers don't ask about attitudes on climate change or gender or people, you know, th- uh, any other thing, their sexuality, religion, or who they voted for. No. These are people who welcome the rest of Canadians. Doesn't matter from what country, where they are. Now, you can decide if constantly emphasizing divisions and our shortcomings is in you or maybe your communities or ultimately our country's best interests. But you know what? I think Canada Day is an opportunity to celebrate our good fortune, our good fortune to live here. I'm not ignoring that progress has to be made in areas, but I'm also not saying, I think it's a, or I am saying it's a big mistake not to acknowledge that progress is already being made. And good things for ourselves and our children are far more likely when we're not always looking to gain a political advantage, and instead we're united rather than divided. Stay with me. As I said, Terry Glavin's going to be up very shortly here, but we also have Ozzy. Ozzy's joining with some shocking stats on the rise in construction costs for new builds. I mean, good luck with affordability. I got Rob Levy joining me on taxpayer footing the bill for electric batteries, and it's on both sides of the border. And once again, no meaningful, no meaningful cost-benefit analysis. Plus, we got Victor. We've had the last quarter, the end of the quarter, second quarter for stocks. Lots to talk about on that score. I'm glad you're with us on this Canada Day weekend. This is an important story, the story for me on Canada Day to talk about. I think it's been the biggest story so far in 2023 into 2022. I mean, grabbing the public's attention there. Terry Glavin has done yeoman's work on this. And when I think about the media, I'm very critical, by the way, and I think everyone knows that. And then I say, but be careful. There are people doing fantastic work in the media terry glavin is one of the people that instantly comes to mind doing important stories courageous stories i would say and i don't use that term uh, loosely but for the last I, I over a decade terry has been talking about uh communist party of china targeting canada That finally seems to be on people's radar, so I'm excited to get Terry here talking about, as I say, I think the most important story we've seen this year, and of course it started last year in the public's consciousness. I mean, the the time frame is much longer. Terry, I appreciate you finding time for us, Uh, and as I say, this is a Canada Day story.
1: Thanks for your kind words there, Michael, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Well, I want to start with, I think the story's gotten so big, Terry, that people sort of get confused. I mean, maybe it jumped on the radar more uh, when it started to talk about election interference, and then that's developed, and there's more evidence on that and more to that story. But I'm going to back up a little bit because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong anywhere along here, but a lot of it starts with the United Front Work Department operations within Canada. So I thought this is something that people absolutely have to have a takeaway on and understand. So maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on the United Front for us.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, you know, around There was a little bit of noise and then a hell of a lot of noise starting last fall about uh, Beijing's influence operations in Canada because of the evidence for uh, Beijing's pro- proxies involved directly involved in election interference in Canada in 2019 and 2021. Um, and I think the interesting thing about that whole hullabaloo was that you had people in the intelligence community who were, um, whistleblowing, I'd say, um, and releasing documents that essentially were reporting that what you know, a handful of reporters in this country um, had been reporting for a, quite a while it was actually true. Yeah. And that they knew that, you know, we're starting to get some of the grainy and gritty detail of um, the United Front's uh, activities in the country. Uh, it's interesting that when CSIS briefed um, Aaron O'Toole um, about. Uh, the united front operations uh, and the election interference operations in 2021 it was all about ensuring the defeat of the conservative party at the polls and it was 100 united front uh that's what we've been hearing from the rcmp from CSIS, from the uh i've been hearing for from, from the uh pco the former uh, uh head of the intelligence assessment Secretariat from for the PCO, going back about a decade now. So, what is the United Front? Okay, the United Front Work Department is a is an infrastructure within the Chinese Communist Party that has been around since the days of Mao Zedong. Um, the The whole point of the United Front is to spread the party's influence outside the party structure uh, uh, domestically. And also internationally, particularly focusing on the diaspora communities. So uh, what happened, a couple of things that were very interesting that happened in 2015. There was a massive boost in the resources that Xi Jinping made available to the United Front, uh, international operations. And we had an election in Canada. Of uh, this is nothing shadowy about it. Of, of a government that was devoted to the proposition that Canada's middle class prosperity lay in the the integration of Canada's advanced market economy and natural resources with China's emerging uh, consumer markets and China's uh, out uh, looking out uh, is is the English translation. Uh, infusion of Chinese capital in acquisitions around the world. Um, So that was a really big event in 2015 for the United Front. And then in 2018, uh, just before the 2019 federal election, interestingly, uh, the United Front in Canada went uh, through another uh, kind of blossoming. It was a massive infusion of resources uh, to the point where By the end of 2018, um, the United Front Work Department's budget, they just added 40,000 more agents. (laughs) And their budget, its budget exceeded the entire budget of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So uh, to conclude, the United Front has basically taken over about 160, I think it is, uh, various uh, kind of astroturf organizations in Canada in the diaspora communities. Actually, a lot of that is very sad. I find it very sad because a lot of these organizations go back more than a century to hometown associations um, that uh, you know Sun Yat-sen and the initial Chinese nationalists established
2: and uh,
1: has been also incredibly successful in Canada in what uh, the United Front calls its elite capture operations um, and we could talk about that because I think that's the big story here really is uh, is that and this isn't sort of shadowy stuff uh, this is this is really what has been happening in plain sight one um, I mean, and uh, but a lot of it does go under the radar because you know, you can talk about this um, in the mo- in the calmest and most rational and modest l- terminology uh, possible, but it sounds like it's just so unbelievable. You know, like there was a massive, for instance, a massive uh, United Front, International United Front conference in Vancouver in 20, 2018, and it got so out of control that the global affairs actually had to explicitly turn away 200 uh, delegates directly from China, from the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office. The Overseas Chinese Affairs Office is now a function of the United Front Work Department, um, and it's run out of uh, the embassy in Ottawa and all the major consulates in the country.
0: So, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Well, I think that it's a level of penetration that I think yeah. still isn't registering with uh, enough Canadians. And go back to your point, it's not that it was hidden. I mean, think about that, a 2018 major conference, as you say. Uh, but this is a direct arm of the Communist Party of China. Yeah. And uh, that's a shocking stat for me. And we do shocking stats on this show when you say they came about, the United Front came out and took over 160 different uh, you know sort of satellite organizations within the Chinese communities across the country Uh, the influence in Toronto I think has now been chronicled as you say where it got the public's attention certainly is when you hear that they are interfering aggressively interfering in our election campaigns I mean we've heard stories of course of Aaron O'Toole as you said but Jenny Kwan from the NDP on the other side Uh, you know so it's it's really targeting these people, and I, I just think it's essential for Canadians to come to understand this. But the the other side, and I mean, I mean, I just think about what the United Front's done. They've got senators, uh, you know. It seems yeah. very closely aligned. Let's call it that, you know. I'm uh, the, it, the, the
1: Canada can, Canadian Senate is mobbed up. It's, really? it's
0: Yeah, it's controlled by people like
1: Senator Yan Wu and Victor O, who are. Uh, they're absolutely indistinguishable in everything they do and say from senior uh, Chinese diplomats in this country. Sorry.
0: It's the truth. Yeah. And they control blocks of the Senate, too. So, Well, th- this is precisely what Canadians have to come to appreciate here, uh, that it's the degree of penetration. And, and that probably explains to, to a great degree I think the puzzle, okay, it's my word, puzzling response to some things like Chinese aggression in Hong Kong. You know, we didn't do anything. My, my joke right. at the time, uh, my sad joke at the time is I think they could invade in Richmond and we'd still be taking it under advisement, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, and, and how unaggressive we've been. And, and I think it's cost us internationally. I'm thinking our relationship with the other members of the Five you know, Five Eyes Intelligence Network uh, the whole thing—it yeah. seems like a different approach from our government—that may partly be explained, at least, by the integration of the Communist Party operatives. Oh, definitely or influence. And
1: I mean, I—you know—I think there's a There's 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 a difficulty in talking about United Front operations in the what we call the Chinese community in Canada, mm-hmm. and and there's a difficulty as well in talking about the United Front uh, uh, operations in the corporate and political. Okay uh, caste in Canada, in, in terms of the diaspora, the, there is no such thing as the Chinese community in Canada. This is the first thing we need to get our head, heads around, right? There was a Chinese community in Canada that was fairly had its own kind of legacy and traditions, and uh, and uh, and so on, going back to the eighteen hundreds. Uh, I'm an immigrant. My immigrant, my family, kind of immigrated into that community, the Taishanese Cantonese community. They were our people. And they were the people who built the railroads, they worked in the mines, they, uh, they had all of those lovely um, amazing farms, as you may remember in the Lower Fraser yeah. Valley and along the flats and so on. Agriculture Canada had once described them as the most produ- that was the most productive farmland in Canada. Yeah. These are the people we used to call the Chinese. Really, they were Tai Chinese, and they came from the uh, five counties at the mouth of the Pearl River Delta. Um, my people. I'm very kind of, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, and then then with all of the various wealth migration, provincial and federal wealth migration initiatives uh, that were introduced about 20 years ago, most notably, of course, the Immigrant Investor Program, a new community was introduced into this country. Now, I don't want to disparage everybody from this community, But uh, this is not the old Chinese community that we know. Uh, These are Mandarin-speaking. Most of them are very, very wealthy. Uh, Many, if not most, of uh, them are uh, affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, They owe their wealth to the Chinese Communist Party. They are deeply connected in this country. There's about... I think the immigration stats, Canada and Immigration Canada will tell you that. But we're talking about seven hundred thousand people in the last twenty years, and um, you know they 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 own most of the best real estate in, in Richmond and Metro Vancouver in the GTA. Um, and there is a there's a hierarchy at the top of the Mandarin block, uh, and there's various you know there's a, there's about five or six major confederations and organizations, and they are run by people like Wei Cheng Li, uh, Cheng Yi, and others who are unapologetically, unambiguously senior figures in the United Front Work Department. You know, you look at the, uh, you look at the, all the people implicated in the, uh, rightly or wrongly, All of the people implicated in the election interference operations in the GTA in uh, 2019 and 2021, uh, they're all United Front Work Department, either operatives or agents or fellow travelers, call them what you want. And only three weeks ago, um, uh, some of the key figures, public figures, um, To the extent that, I mean, yeah, you're right. Hardly anybody knows about these guys. Not many people are paying attention. But publicly known figures were back in Beijing being publicly congratulated by Xi Jinping. I mean, that's the deal here, I think. It's kind of like it's in plain sight. This is the interesting thing for me. One of the reasons we have such a difficulty in getting this, there's a couple of reasons why we have a difficulty getting this through to people is that there were a lot of people in the corporate sector in this country uh, who I think we can say genuinely naively, were naive. They were naive about China uh, and, you know, opening up and there were people in the bureaucracy and global affairs. You could say that they were naive. You know, we were sending uh, our officials back to China to train judges. <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and police, and all of this. I mean, it's God. But I think the idea that China would become more like us the more they became free market, um, I think this was less for a lot of people, particularly at the head of the Canada-China Business Council, the Power Corporation in Montreal, uh, you know, the whole Gemaray set, Jean, Jean, Jean Chrétien, and I would say also Jean Charest, uh, I don't know that they were naive, and I think that's certainly not something that you can say of Justin Trudeau and his family, uh, his father and his brother, and everybody else connected to that circle. I think this notion that China was opening up, and the more they became capitalist, the more they become democratic. I think this is more of a pretext than a, than than, than the naivety, um, yeah. and and it's it, this is where I think it becomes really sinister. You know, when when you're a CSIS agent and you're tracking this stuff, uh, and you're you're monitoring and surveilling key United Front figures, and you find that the same names start showing up, and they are they are active within the Liberal Party, they form part of the Liberal Party's candidate base and fundraising networks, what do you do? If you're a CSIS agent, you're not supposed to be spying on your own government. Do you open a file on Mary Ng and Michael Chan and and Han Dong? Um, So I think that's where a lot of the whistleblowing came from. And um, the other thing is that there's a very small, you know, as you well know, uh, you know, the whole sort of media model is broken. Right. It's happening all over the English speaking world, particularly in North America. It's most pronounced in Canada. Uh, and and at the very beginning of all of this, when it really started to get weird, when um, when China began to buy up strategic spigot points in the oil patch uh, during the Harper uh, government and the Harper cabinet was split and didn't know what to make of it. And you had the, you know, CNOC buying Nexon, It was the largest acquisition, overseas acquisition in the history of the of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I, there were a handful of us. I remember Jerry, Jeremy. Jeremy, not all of my Jeremy's a great guy works for the Toronto Star now. Um, you know, we were sitting in a bar in Ottawa. He leans across to me and he says, "Are we the only reporters in this country covering China from a kind of a national security point of view?" And I was like, "Get out of here." <laughs> And I went, holy cow, that's true. And I was just doing it off the side of my desk. And now, I mean, over the years, you've got now that there's sort of a change, there was a change of command at the Globe and Mail, where Edward Ed Greenspan goes off to the public policy forum and he starts doing actual public relations work (laughs) devised by the the Chinese embassy on behalf of the federal government. There was a change of command at the Globe and Mail. That really helped. And then Sam Cooper came along. He was covering crime and smuggling in Vancouver and the Vancouver model and fentanyl and the casinos and all that stuff. So you ended up with a cohort of journalists. I can name them on the fingers almost of one hand, which is the heartbreaking Mm -hmm. bit. I mean, there's me, I've been around for a while. There's Bob Fife and Steve Chase at the Globe and Mail. Amazing guys. There's poor old Sam Cooper, who's been, you know, beaten and battered and sued and everything for his amazing work uh, lately. You've got Jeremy Nuttall and Joanna Shu at the Toronto Star. Tom Blackwell, who's just taken a buyout at the National Post, but he's uh, freelancing back to the Post from time to time. You've got Bob Mackin in Vancouver. He's really good. Uh, every once in a while, Graham Wood and some freelancers and smaller you know, uh, sort of webzine kind of deals. And you've got people, of course, in the diaspora communities who are publishing as best they can uh, independently. There's a wonderful little Substack stack newsletter uh, affiliated with mine. Uh, mine, by the way, is called The Real Story, a little bit of a boost. It's called Found in Translation. And what they do is they translate um, documents and uh and, uh, uh, transcripts from meetings and so on in Mandarin and, uh, usually Mandarin, sometimes in Cantonese, uh, involving Canadian officials and Chinese officials and United front people in Canada. And they publish them in English. They break front page stories almost every day found translation. So it's a small town. It's a small group of journalists, right? And part of the difficulty as well, just to conclude this little rant is that, at the federal level, the, the thing is, there there are politics, and I don't mean to beat up on the Liberals, but my gosh, they're the government, for God's sake. They've been in power since 2015. They see nothing wrong with this. The stuff that you and I look at, and most, can, by the way, 87% of Canadians, and they say, holy cow, this is wrong. They don't see this country that way. They do not see Canada in the same way. They see nothing particularly wrong with this I am reminded of Martin Koshan, who was a Liberal cabinet minister when Huawei, uh, much to the chagrin of our Five Eyes partners, was embedding itself in Ottawa and subsidized to do so, thanks to Michael Chan and the Ontario government and so on. Koshan said, Well, you know, there's an old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, this has been, I'm sorry, but it has been integrated in the federal government's economic immigration, foreign policy from the beginning of the Trudeau government. In fact, before Trudeau was even leader of the Liberal Party, you had people like uh, Dominic Barton and his, uh, his, his, his consulting agency, uh, you know, advising Trudeau on how to pull this off. You know, Barton, who was at the time, you know, actually on a board overseeing Chinese state-owned operations <laughs> in China. Uh, doing consulting work for the Chinese who are building those militarized islands in the South China Sea, you know. I mean, this is this is who these guys are. You had the head of the China, Canada-China Business Council, Peter Harder, who was retained by Trudeau to essentially pick his first cabinet, head his transition, and then was given the most senior position in the in in the Senate. Um, it was all sort of in plain sight, you know? So when you've got Trudeau, you know, this great public relations effort that the, the the United Front Work Department was pulling off, when you've got the prime minister of this country skating out on the ice with Premier Li Kang in a Habs jersey and everyone, yay, isn't this lovely? Um, this is in plain sight, right? And so I think a lot of politicians, And a lot of maybe journalists or publishers publishers and editors hate to be mean about this, but the CBC, which has never broken one significant story about China or Chinese influence at all. um, Who's going to say, my God, my God, what have we done? Who's going to say, holy cow, we were wrong? Who's going to say this was happening under our noses for years? And I'm sorry, we let you down. (laughs) We messed up. That doesn't
3: happen often.
0: Well, one uh, there's a couple of things there. One is that uh, when you say naivety, I, I don't know how people could not recognize who they're dealing with after Tiananmen Square, yeah. after they after they break the international agreement on Hong Kong, and we have no response to that, no meaningful response whatsoever. Who did we think we were dealing with? It, it's my take that the Canadian public's consciousness was raised when they kidnapped the, the two, in quotes, the two Michaels. Yeah. Uh, You know, these are not nice guys. You know, the biggest human rights abuser on the planet. I think there's no competition there. I mean, nobody's arguing that point. Certainly none of the human rights. Who did we think we were dealing with? And especially what's, uh, I think, distressing is the work you've done, CSIS, uh, you know, the parliamentary uh, committee you know, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, the Canadian military, how many warnings did we need on this? You know, as you say, though, the key point, it was in plain sight, and no reaction. Uh, maybe the most outrageous example that you uh, one that you have written about, but is uh, John McCallum, you know, oh, yeah, Chinese, you I mean, well, I think people have to know that story. Well, John about Chinese interference. I mean, yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the. More, I mean, it's comical. It's really comical, right? I mean, it's just so amazing that who's going to believe this, right? You wrote, report this in the most crisp Canadian press style pyramid style report, you know, a news mm-hmm. story. It's like Martians have landed. John McCallum, who took like seventy three thousand dollars in free trips to China. Uh, before he was in the cabinet, uh, whose sons have all married into, you know, Chinese uh, elite families. Peter Harder, Peter Harder, by the way, whose son worked in the embassy in China. You got John McCallum. And the interesting thing about this, this wasn't like a CSIS wiretap that was leaked to a reporter, Right. You had, I mean, John McCallum, he thought it, he was a cabinet minister. And when he was, he was appointed ambassador to China, he considered this a promotion. He goes to China, the, the, the whole Meng Wanzhou, two Mike's things erupts. He takes China's side publicly twice to the point where Christian Freeland had to say to Justin Trudeau, Either he goes or I go. This is mental, right? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 uh, and so McCallum, you know, he returns to you know his previous line of business, and he's you know I can't is it Dentons, one of those law firms. Dentons, by the way, they all end up at Dentons, and people forget that Dentons is actually basically a wholly owned subsidiary of Beijing Da Cheng. And we trot out people like Jean as this elder statesman. You know, what do you think, John? Is this important? He he, he works with Beijing, Cheng for God's sake. All he's been doing since he was chased out of the country in that uh, sponsorship scandal is he's been greasing bombs in Beijing for big money for a firm that's the subsidiary of the largest law consultancy on earth, Beijing.Cheng. Anyway, McCallum wasn't a wiretap wire transcript. You know, wasn't a leak to a reporter on the record in an interview with the South China Morning Post says, yeah, I've been telling all of my former interlocutors in the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs in how they should comport themselves and conduct themselves in such a way as to ensure the reelection of the Liberal Party in the upcoming election and the defeat of the Conservative Party. Now, he said this on the record, and I think this is very telling. It's telling that he, it goes to my point, these guys see nothing wrong with this. They see this, they don't think the way we do.
0: Mm -hmm. They don't
1: see this country in the same way we do. You know, Trudeau's famous post national state and all that stuff. How do you do national security in a post national state? Of course, they're all trying to. They're doing whatever they can to shut down public discussion about all of this. Of course, they took, instead of a public inquiry, they hired David Johnston. David Johnston is a textbook case of elite capture. You know, he's got honorary degree from Nanjing University. You know, his daughters are, you know, he says everybody in Canada should be speaking Chinese. He's got daughters who went, uh, three daughters who went to university in China. You know, he established the first Confucius Institute in, in Canada, which is a, you know, it's an overseas surveillance and and, and strong-arm agency of the Chinese government. You know, that's David Johnston, this lovely man, you know, sweet grandfatherly figure. I know, we'll bring him in. And he issues this whitewash report. Of course they don't want us to know about this. And by they, I mean, you know, the core group around Justin Trudeau. And the Liberals fought against the establishment of the Canada-China Committee in the House of Commons. They fought against every single effort by journalists or by opposition parties to know the basic facts about what has been going on here. Um, and the NDP, I regret to say, hasn't been much better. They've just been sort of tagging along. I mean, there's good liberals and good New Democrats and, and rancid liberals and rancid New Democrats. And the same can be said for the conservatives, I suppose. But, um, you know, I regret, I, I, I worry. I don't, I don't know that the public inquiry, as it's currently formulated in a motion, that uh, originally was authored uh, by the New Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know that it's going to get get at this. If we do get a public inquiry, I think we're going to have to start focusing. You know, it's going to be a laser focus on what we're talking about here. Otherwise, you know, we'll have you know all of these hearings about you know the NDP's fixation on whether or not Russia was behind the trucker convoy and all of this kind of yeah. <laughs> carry on. So, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal and if you love your country or if you just like your country or if you think Canada might be a, you know, healthy liberal democracy uh, you know, in, informed by the values of pluralism and uh and human rights and sovereignty, well, then I think this is probably going to be something you might want to think about.
0: A- absolutely, I think this is uh As I say, the biggest story uh, in in the last year to the public's attention, you've been chronicling it for, I mean, the incredible thing is how hard they had to work to ignore various reports, as I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, uh, and just uh, there was a working effort. But I think your explanation is because they had a completely different view of Canada, of what Canada is, uh, and obviously well integrated into, uh, you know, uh, power circles in this country. To me, I feel, uh, and it's a lonely world, as you say, I can also, I'm familiar with the like five, six people who've been, you know, sort of bravely leading this charge. And uh, I'm glad the National Post, Ottawa Citizen, you know, have done that with you and giving you that platform. But I'd also say to people, go to the real story, because you get a chance, uh, not just on, you know, on Substack, but not just on, of course, specifically China uh, there's, you've done some great stuff, and, and, and uh, I'll tell you on the, uh, uh, of another pertinent uh, subject for another time, as I called it, the bravest story, uh, when you talked about some of the holes in the unmarked grave story.
3: Yeah,
1: you know, that was the, an uh, entire uh, concoction areas. of the federal government. All these indigenous communities across Canada are taking it on the chin because of this stuff. This was, you know, I hate it when people say, oh, Indians are grifting the federal government. It's actually the other way around. And and also the Russia stuff, which is big right now. I got hauled off to everything I was doing to focus on Russia. And I've got several chips on my shoulder there. I've been sanctioned by Russia. I'm barred from Mm -hmm. Russia. I'm a senior fellow with the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. So is uh, Vladimir Karamurza, who's in jail in Russia and who's now an honorary citizen. So that's three chips on my shoulder. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it is a small town. Unfortunately, there's really great journalists in this country who've been doing their best to basically just do some basic gumshoe reporting, and 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 it's a very 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 difficult environment. On the China file, you have this massive United Front operation right now that's trying to shut down the uh, the, the 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 move to a, a foreign. Agents registry. And you've got Yen Pao Wu and and Victor O and all these really and they're this is big money. Just unimaginable wealth. I mean, when they when they show up to harass you know the the protesters in favor of Hong Kong um, you know, in the last couple, they show up in fleets of Lamborghinis and McLaren's. You know, and now they're saying they're starting up a big fund to go after journalists who engage in what they are now calling election denialism, <laughs> you know, anybody. So I just, you know, it's tough. And I think you just got to do what you do, tell the truth, do the right thing, put your best foot forward. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, you sleep the sleep of the just and you get up the next day and you give her a I don't know what else
0: you can do. Well, but what you've described here is a huge challenge. And only the Canadian public can get behind the work, uh, you know, in favor of Canada as a nation, the independence of the nation against that kind of interference by the biggest human rights abuser on the planet. And the public's got to, as you say, I, I appreciate that the public sentiment is recognizing who we're dealing with in China, but we have to do more to support because they got a lot of money, a lot of opposition. You remember when they paid the protesters down in Vancouver? Yeah. I can't remember, you know, a couple of years ago we find, oh, it's they were so, all paid. So this is my job. <laughs> well, absolutely. But that that is direct that's what my whole point is here. It's such in, in pervasive interference by the Communist Party of China. And either that's not good enough, or allowed, or you know, uh, it's way over anybody's boundary. And thanks to the work you've done and others, uh, at least it's in our attention. Well, you too, Mike. Public's court. You well, too, the Mike. Well, thank you for Take that. The the public, uh, you know, the ball is in our court as a public to say no, not enough. Yeah. And uh, anyways, Terry, look, I've kept you longer, but I really appreciate, and I want to encourage people to go to the Ottawa Citizen, go to the National Post, but really go to the real story because there's so much more going on here. And Terry gets a chance to discuss it and write about it in detail. Because I'll tell you, good journalism starts with uh, work ethic, in my opinion. And uh, it has a lot of other qualities, but it starts with a work ethic. Intellectual laziness in this kind of a complex environment is not uh, beneficial to anybody. And uh, Terry does the work along with people like Sam Cooper, Robert Fife, Steve Chase. So There is a small group, but does the work the real so you go to substack you just put in the real story terry thanks for finding time
1: thanks a lot happy canada Day, everybody
0: time now for the quote of the week maybe i should put it as quotes for a generation you know if you're a regular listener to money talks you'll recognize the name thomas Sowell on the short list of top economists of the last hundred years His is a remarkable story, though, if you're not familiar with it. He was born in South Carolina, brought up in poverty in Harlem, a poverty so pressing that he was forced to drop out of school. He went on to fight in the Korean War. When he returned home, he was accepted by Harvard. He went on to Columbia for his master's, University of Chicago for his doctorate. He's authored, what, nearly 50 books, received the National Humanities Medal for Innovation, Innovative Scholarship, which incorporates history, economics, and political science, uh, with renowned work on race, on poverty, on politics. Well, Friday, Thomas Sowell turned 93 years old. So I thought, great time to share some of his quotes. And this guy, uh, the number of times I've read works by him and said, I wish I was that articulate, that clever. So uh, as I say, it's a real treat if you're not familiar with his work. On taxation, he says, Since this is an era where many people are concerned about fairness and social justice, what is your fair share of what someone else has worked for? On virtue signaling, much of the social history of the Western world over the past three decades has been a history of replacing what worked with what sounded good. On education, the problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. On politics and economics. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Oh, well, let me just go maybe a couple more. This is on politics. Virtually no idea is too ridiculous to be accepted, even by very intelligent and highly educated people, if it proves a way for them to feel special and important. Some confuse that feeling with idealism. And finally, this is an absolute key when you're understanding government policy, understanding economics. It should be just posted everywhere. And that is, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Well, politicians love to ignore the trade-offs. We've gotten so many problems with things called unintended consequences because they push a certain way as if there's a certainty to it. But there are always trade-offs. You know, one of the things that happens is a story grabs our attention and then it doesn't take long for us to kind of let it move on. doesn't matter if the implications are large and huge, you know, as I was talking, uh, you know, with Terry Glavin about. But this one is a big one. You know, when I see that the federal government, you know, giving upwards of $13.5 billion to Volkswagen or some, you know, taxpayer-supported, then we get Stellantis getting another huge chunk of change. Then we have the parliamentary budget officer coming out and saying, you know, they're underselling that. It's going to be more expensive, et cetera. This is a whole thing that needs a lot more focus and discussion. Uh, Rob Levy joins me on the line right now. You know, Rob, one of the things that jumps out immediately, governments like to say, hey, We're doing that because uh, we're going to create jobs. Well, none of those job projections come true. And especially, well, on the one hand, you have the government boasting about uh, this low unemployment rate. And the other saying it's going to create these jobs. Where are the people going to come from? I mean, literally, they're going to leave other jobs. There's going to be no net job claim. And I've got the vast, vast majority of economists agreeing with me on that.
4: A hundred percent, Mike. You're hearing stories week in and week out now. And as you said, it relates to the level of government spending that we've seen through the pandemic, but to this point has, in a sense, very much carried on. So you get these big frivolous announcements, manufacturing, investing domestically, job creation, as you said, but is it really job creation or what's the, uh, so to say, uh, impact of it? And, and and what's it actually going to produce in the after effects? And I think that's where you, as you as you hint at, you gotta dive a little deeper.
0: Well, and in this case we're talking about uh, you know, electronic vehicle batteries, uh, you know, when we talk to this, and it's interesting because you're seeing the same push in the states, you know, under the Biden administration, uh, you know, with giving uh I think it was not was it nine billion to Ford, you know, basically for the same kind of area.
4: Exactly right. And this is an announcement that's come within the past couple of weeks from the Biden administration. And what strikes you about this is the economic environment that we're in. But it's the biggest investment from the government in a U.S. automaker. Since the financial crisis. And, and you think of the two different scenarios between now and a little over a decade ago when some of these guys were on near collapse in a, a global financial crisis recession. And, and today, I mean, these, these guys had no issues selling cars, but $9.2 billion in the form of a loan to Ford in order to partner with a South Korean company to invest in three battery factories. Uh, but yeah, w- what is the effect of this? Why, why is Ford so, so to speak, taking this? this large sum of money to invest in batteries, can they prove that they can actually do it? And is it, you know, just ultimately another way of creating inflation in this environment?
0: Well, yeah, there's a couple of things there, absolutely, to elaborate on. Uh, Interestingly, uh, this week that Ford announced that I think they were losing $3 billion in their electric vehicle side of the business uh, with no end in sight. I think they gave a few years out there, though, which are losing money every time they sell uh, an EV. That's kind of interesting to get this money. But the other side, I think, is very important when you get the, uh, what's it called, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, right? And it's so inflationary. Like, this is one of those double speaks that, uh, you know, that that we hear about, obviously, George Orwell wrote about, but inflation and,
4: and ran Inflation Reduction Act. Well, it's inflationary. It, it, exactly right and, and i mean to come back on a couple of those so ford has plans to make 2 million electric vehicles a year by 2026 last year they made 132,000 so it is a big leap and, and part of the united states strategy uh, aside from you know the inflation implications is to onshore some battery production in the united yeah. states because they're so vulnerable to economies in asia and particularly china who who absolutely controls this market so they want to have More of a U.S. presence. So that's where they're allocating federal dollars. But, you know, to the next part of it, how can it not be inflationary? Because where is the labor going to come from? We are sitting near four decade lows in the unemployment rate in the United States. So it just essentially comes at the cost of something else. And then you start to look at some of these deals. And, you know, this is why maybe highlighting the Ford one, but $9.2 billion loan, of which they're getting cheap financing from the federal government. That's inflationary. The project cost is a little over a $11 billion and there's state credits that come into play. So there's tax credits there. You buy an electric vehicle in the U S you're further subsidized by the federal government. So it just screams everywhere you look, you know, you're losing value because of how cheaply it's being subsidized.
0: And the other thing that seems to be, uh, you know, sort of anti how you approach business is the cost benefit analysis. Unfortunately, these numbers are so big that the reaction to them wouldn't change if you moved a few billion left or right, you know, it doesn't matter where, you know, up plus or minus. And, and, of course, our parliamentary budget officer basically said, we've done no cost-benefit analysis on any of the green spending. I mean, $60 billion since 2015, we've got no cost. So the Department of the Environment says, we actually don't know which is the most effective use of the money. We don't know if it accomplished its goals. And this will be another uh, example, as you say. So they give $9 billion to Ford, and you sort of go, would do have any different reaction if it was twelve billion or six billion? And same with our examples with Stellantis and with Volkswagen. I mean, if the, in fact, we got that example. Just thinking of it, when the Parliamentary Budget Office says they're twenty percent short and how much it's going to cost the taxpayer, and no reaction to that. Like the Canadian yep. public says, "Ah, oh, still good," you know. And uh, you know, and it's all under the guise of yes, we're going to create more jobs. Well, I mean, we just got another example this week was it the Canadian infrastructure bank said, and this was, I mean, this is so unbelievable. I don't know if you caught this, Rob. They had a promise of 56,000 jobs being created. Okay. It was a typo. It, w- it was never true. It was never based on anything. So their excuse was, it was a typographical error. Well, I'm not sure how to have confidence in any of this stuff. And uh, in the end, there's always consequences.
4: 100% right, right, Mike. And, and just, you know, to go back to Canada and to focus on the tightness of this Canadian labor market already. So as you said, creating jobs, but where are the jobs coming from? At Bank of Montreal this past week looked at a candlestick chart of Canadian unemployment rate going back 40 years of each of the 10 provinces and territories in Canada. And you look at the candlestick as the range, the high to the low every single province is just about sitting on their low in terms of an unemployment rate. And the range between provinces, the high, low, the difference is as narrow as it's ever been in a decade. So you're doing this at a time and inflationary when it's already a tight market to begin with.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a, a you know, huge key component uh, for it. Rob, I want to thank you for taking the time though. Lots to talk about, as you say, tough to do it in just a few minutes but we appreciate it and you can find Rob at bordergold.com let me back up and make sure i make that clear rob levy he does a absolutely writes on the gold market every week lots of other information there but it's bordergold.com rob thanks for finding time thanks mike time now for this week's shocking stat now i wonder if you've heard or read anything like this stat in our media I haven't, despite the fact it's a profoundly material to the development of renewable energy. You know, earlier this year on Money Talks, our shocking stat of the week focused on earth justice, whose model is because the earth needs a good lawyer. And shockingly, I think it has 180 full-time lawyers on staff, and they estimate they're involved in 650, 650 ongoing active legal proceedings fighting against various projects related to green energy, like a talking uh, earlier with Rob Levy about batteries. Well, you need lithium, you know, or copper mining or other resources to facilitate this transition. But the opposition to renewable energy goes far beyond that. As Robert Bryce, one of our favorites on Money Talks, who was way ahead of the curve, by the way, 13 years ago, he wrote a book called Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy, and he's now on Substack. Well, Robert started to track the local opposition to renewable wind and solar projects by the communities impacted. We have got an example earlier this week when Claremont County in Ohio, the county commissioners unanimously voted to ban large solar and wind projects in seven townships after residents uh, really went apoplectic. And they criticized solar. They described one of the facilities under construction as almost 700 acres of pure hell. But that's just one example. And it brings me to my shocking stat. Robert Bryce has been tracking the opposition to wind and solar projects since 2015, and the numbers are shocking. Consider, in 2015, 66 different wind projects were rejected in the U.S. The following year, 60. 2017, 53 were rejected. But as I said, you rarely hear about the local opposition and legal challenges. So you're probably surprised to hear that between 2015 to 2023, actually 2023 to date, there have been 391 wind projects restricted or outright cancelled. 391 and counting, and that's just wind. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in. You know, one of the themes that Ozzy and I have been on on for a number of years, especially the government's participation in the lack of affordability. They do these little things to correct problems they created. I'm always on about that. Because I, to be, to be honest, I can't stand it that they us and say they care about affordability. But it's also a bigger problem. I mean, we've got a new study this week uh, that just shows how the building costs have gone through the roof. And I'm going to bring Ozzy in because he was the one who he's been looking at this stuff. By the way, Ozzy is at a dental convention right now up at Whistler. Uh uh, very impressive that he hangs out with dentists. I mean, uh, we all need dentists. But uh, So, Ozzy, thank you for finding time. I know it's busy. You gave a speech. You've got people to talk to, et cetera. I'm glad you're still talking to us.
3: Yeah, no, I know. <clears throat> I love being at Whistler, and I love being with dentists. And these are the Pacific Coast Society for Prostodontics. I did not know what it was, but actually, honestly, without quipping or funny, this is an amazing stuff that they can do with your mouth. It just blows yeah. me away. It scares me to death, but blows me away.
0: <laughs> it's funny what people want. A lot of people to be done to my mouth is simply tape it shut. So it would be a very, <laughs> a very interesting procedure. Hey, look, I want to come to this. Uh, you know, as I say, a new report. I think it was an RBC report came out and showed the cost of, uh, you know, construction of housing has what? It's about four times higher than the rate of inflation, if, if that wasn't too awkward. In other words, it's exploding.
3: Well, 51 percent. I mean, anybody can extend that. I mean, it's just just absolutely crazy. I mean, so the cost of building a home sees now dramatic jumps, of course, in concrete, uh, structural steel prices, soaring lumbers. So it's, it's, it's not enough that we have an immigration-driven population boom, that our rents are soaring, that we have a shortage of workers and raw materials. We also simply, everything is settling down in prices.
0: Yeah, and I, I you know, we. this is a subject that's all around us, but I mean, no one ever describes actually what affordability is and how you would ever really get there. I mean, are we gonna get, and these building material costs, the construction costs are just such a great example. Where do you think the people who work on that or sell the materials, etc.? what, are they gonna take a, a huge discount? No, they're not. I mean, their cost of living is going up. The cost of products is going up. Uh, it's just its just pointing out how difficult it is or how glib it is to say, oh, we're going to make affordable housing when you see numbers like that, the cost of construction, you know, skyrocketing.
3: Well, you're so right. I mean, RBC says that we have uh – the wage growth in construction was 9.4% last year. That's almost double the pace of, of other industries. I mean, I was talking to a community builder, Mr. Sharan City in Surrey, and he says, look, something has to change. Otherwise, developers will just stop building. You know, it just mm-hmm. doesn't make any more sense. And then, you look, this week we also had Benjamin Tall from CIBC coming out and said, look, the rental building, to build a rental building today in Toronto means that the guy who builds it will lose money. So guess what's going to happen? He's not going to build it. I mean, he says that a 400-unit building in Toronto, the developer would build a condo project, he would have a profit of 12.5%. But the same developer building this unit as a rental project, he'll lose 20%. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: It's such a key... I mean, and people have to think about that, man. I mean, it's because one of the most prominent subjects we have in, in public debate is affordability. It's one of the, you know, go-to subjects for any politician. And yet, you look at some of these numbers, and your point about it discourages development is so well taken. Uh, but I'd go further. I mean, you start throwing on the regulation, the cost of the regulatory burden. I know, I know two people who are in the development business who sort of said, well, I'm not doing any more. It's just well, too much hassle. It's I can't get 68 pieces of paper and have to get a lawyer involved to deal just with the levels of government or the municipality, whatever it is. They just said, it's just not worth it. I'm getting on an age. I'm not doing it anymore.
3: That's funny. I could name you dozens of examples where halfway through the building process after all the, the approvals were done. The city comes up, oh, we should need to put in a bike bike lane, or concrete sidewalks, or parkland yep. fees, and so on. But the thing is, this that we need to sort of literally waive property taxes, maybe on rental units, or we would have a, a reduction in development charges and parkland fees. And it's funny, Benjamin Tal from CRBC says, well. That won't happen. cash stop municipalities will say no. So he comes up with this fairly unique suggestion. And just imagine, he talks about HST payments on purpose-built rental buildings. If we just waive those, that move alone would save close to 60000 a unit from the unit cost in that 400-unit uh, property in Toronto. And it would be in a meaningful uh, reduction in rate and unlocking thousands of rental units. So the government really has that opportunity and it's not up to the municipality who won't do it and it's not up to the province but by just taking away that HST it would be a huge step.
0: And that it just reminds me, and you know I rail about this, because again, my complaint is that the politicians pretend it's different. They ignore the impact that they're having. They've tricked a lot of Canadians into thinking it's some other cause. When you look at every aspect of the development process from, you know, getting licensing or, you know, land land permission, all the levies, all the taxes, et cetera. And there's a great example. And it makes me think of things like out in British Columbia, they've got the property purchase tax. You want to throw on tens of thousands of dollars. But this is exactly, your point is so well taken. People should hear the number that if you remove the HST on average, you know, uh, involved in the development, it could save 60,000 a unit. I mean, this is really big money and meaningful money.
3: Yeah, and the key is that it's rental units. I mean, this is the very yeah. thing you're saying on the one we we speak with with forked tongue, right? On the one hand yeah. saying we need affordability, on the other hand say no, no, but we need to have that sixty thousand dollars HSD. And then we blame the developer saying, Well, he he doesn't he's not a good corporate citizen. So who would ever build something knowing going in that he loses twenty percent?
0: Yeah, and back to what you said a little earlier, what was it, two hundred and ninety two thousand uh, growth in the population uh, in the first quarter this year. And I think the number of housing units was about 46,000 off the top of my head. You know, that is, not, that is not an equation that computes if you want affordable housing. I mean, it's gotta be all of these factors. I'm not trying to oversimplify. The tax structure, the permit structure, uh, you know, the cost of, uh, cost of employment or, or hiring people now has gone way up, of course, because of inflation. There, it's a long list. But I still don't see any meaningful uh, addressing of the role that government's playing in this.
3: Now it seems almost, and you've said this many times, it seems almost like the government wants to crash the economy and crash us as individuals in order to wipe out our <coughs> inflationary expectation, and they're, they're succeeding somewhat, Mike. And this, the, the early indication, it's an early number, show that the sales May in Vancouver versus June are down. Just under fifty percent. That's a whopping thing. It just so happens that we increased interest rates dramatically yeah. during the month.
0: And I think that's exactly the point. You know, we chatted about consumer spending. You know, being up in April, not bad. It looks like in May, but then they surprised on a heck of a lot of people by bumping rates up. I think that took completely that agenda when they paused in March. I think a lot of people jumped to the conclusion, okay, that's it for the rises, and then we debated, when are they going to fall? Well, that scenario seems to have been obliterated, as I was talking with Rob Levy about, seems to have obliterated, and I was really going to be interesting to see as these kind of numbers come forward if the psychology of the market hasn't taken a hit. I know it's always a little weaker in June, but this is like four times weaker so far on the preliminary numbers.
3: Well, and you ask yourself why, and, and then you look at the United States, 339,000 new jobs, 22,000 fewer unemployment application. all of that points to higher interest rates, and then you look around the world, I mean, England now raised its interest rates by 3 quarter of a percent in two bumps, May a quarter and a half a percent last week, all of this putting it together, what are they scared about? And I think they're scared that we have an almost runaway inflation type of mentality. We really believe things are going to be more expensive, so we act that way. And so we have higher interest rates in the future, the wisdom of Ozzie's <laughs> <Aussie> saying
0: <laughs> no I, I mean there is the upwards pressure I mean, it's going to be interesting I mean we'll be here talking about it in July if they bump again but uh, as I say it, it's a huge subject for Canadians they have to become more aware of what's going on because I think they've been sold a bill of goods up to this point Ozzie, thanks for taking the time and happy Canada Day weekend
3: and all the happiest Canada weekends to all of your listeners <laughs>
0: Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Dare joins me. Hey, Vic, let me start by saying this has got to be one of your best weeks of the year. We got July first and July fourth, quiet week coming up. But I want to wish you a happy Canada Day weekend. Uh great to have you with us here. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And I'm going to start with could have been my shocking stat, by the way. Could have been my shocking stat. And that's that what? Apple touches the three trillion dollar mark?
2: Yeah, it uh it it's been an incredible run. I think Apple is up nearly 50% from the beginning of this year, as is Microsoft. But yeah, it's a $3 trillion market cap. Now, that's $3 trillion US. And I have to tell you that the Toronto Stock Exchange, the entire stock exchange in Toronto, is worth about three trillion U.S. dollars. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's just to to give you some perspective, I guess, as to what three trillion dollars means. One stock in the United States. Now, it is the biggest stock in the world, but it's worth as much as the entire Canadian stock market.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And You know, I look back, I think it crossed a trillion, and these are just broad numbers, but they're sort of fun to look at. Crosses a trillion in August 2018, and here we are, you know, just under five years later, and it's now worth three trillion. I mean, wow.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's an, a new all time high this week, and, you know, the same old story we've had here for, I guess, most of this year mega cap tech is leading this rally. Uh, I think if you put Apple and Microsoft together, they are 15% of the market cap of the S&P. If you add in the other five stocks in the Magnificent Seven, as they're called, all tech stocks, of course, uh, they add up to about 30% of the market cap of the S&P.
0: I I want people to stop for a second. We're talking the S&P 500, for goodness sakes. You know, major companies and two stocks are worth 15% of them. I mean, come on. I mean, it just shows how dominant those magnificent, do they have a, by the way, some sort of marketing agency that looks at <laughs> stock moves and makes up names like this. But anyways, the magnificent seven, a Western I enjoyed immensely, by the way, Yule Brenner version and Denzel Washington version, but I'm a sucker for that stuff. But yeah, the big seven, you know, just dominating the move so far this year. Despite a little bit of catch up, but you know they are the leaders.
2: While we're talking mega cap tech, we got we got to mention Tesla. Uh, whether you knew it or not, Tesla is the most traded stock in the world, and its share price has uh, meandered up about 150 percent here uh, in the first six months of this year.
0: Yeah, just just astounding. The, the other thing that I know that you've mentioned before, but It's you've got this sort of boom going in this area anyways, but it hasn't extended into, you know, it's like the initial public offering market.
2: Yeah, I was very intrigued by that. I mean, it seems as though in Canada anyway, the IPO market is dead and it's certainly we're getting layoffs by the banks, you know, in their in their mergers and acquisitions departments. Same thing with the big brokerage firms in the States. It seems maybe that people just want to buy the leaders and the hell with it that's all they want to do we actually seen the last two weeks here we've seen capital flow away from the stock market net net uh, yet prices are going to the upside as you and i've talked before if you are a money manager you're managing other people's money you have to own apple if you don't own it you got to go buy it or it's just going to look bad when you do your reports and speaking of reports. We're not only at month end, we're at quarter end, so there's definitely going to be reports out there that people are going to be polishing up their books to go into the end of the quarter.
0: You know what's kind of interesting is that it's not like Apple's going gangbusters, and I'm not here pretending to do a deep dive fundamental analysis. I'm just making an observation. It's not like Apple's performance would suggest, hey, let's triple that value. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's reach the most expensive stock in the world. I'm just finding that interesting, and it's the kind of thing I would note and do more work on.
2: Yeah, Mike, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but I know I've read it somewhere in the last couple of days. I mean, their sales are down, their profitability is down, and their forecast for for the next quarter or so is no great shakes. But it's just a case of people, it's capital flow. When I say your money manager has to own that stuff, if he doesn't, he feels as though he's going to lose business to his competitors. So,
0: you know, this could be a sign of a top, but... You don't want to try to short this thing. No, no. But let me just come, okay, back to the question of the day. And that's, interest, you know, we're coming into Ju- July now. You know, there's talk in the U.S. of an interest rate bump, talk in Canada, interest rate bump, uh, you know, and around the world there is. And so I want to start with uh, one thing very quickly is, you know, the rate of inflation seems to be the determining factor for central banks. And I guess they're, gonna, they're thinking they haven't made enough progress.
2: Yeah, the inflation rate, however you want to measure it, however you want to look at it, is just—it's well above the targets of the different central banks around the world, and it—it it seems as though what they're using is a, like a Phillips curve. We look at it, and the only way for them to solve the problem—and they see it's a problem, particularly—they yeah. don't want to get inflation expectations entrenched, but they've got these blunt instruments. And in the simplest of terms, it seems as though the only way they can get inflation down is if they get unemployment up and they get the economy into a recession, especially when I say get it down, get it down to their targets and. It's, it's almost like, you go you know, maybe maybe we've missed something here over the past few decades when we're trying to have a small group of bureaucrats, you know, run the economy uh, using old school methodology in terms of how they try to size up what the economy is and what their what tools they have to manage it.
0: Well, especially that interest rates were never going to be uh, impactful in some areas, for example, food you know, that's one of the biggest problems for people is these consistent, huge rises in food prices compounding. Well, raising interest rates isn't going to impact that. You know, climate policy had a lot more to do with energy story than, you know, yes, I'm not saying demand doesn't play a part in that. But, you know, there's many areas of the economy, it's complex, where Just raising rates was not going to be the formula for getting inflation down. I'm wondering if there's not starting to bump into that. And again, it's a phrase we use all the time. But, uh, you know, yes, we saw gasoline prices down, you know, uh, in May. But that was, in, in quotes, the base effect, because we had huge rises in gasoline sort of May, June last year. We're comparing to that now. So even if you're on the West Coast, $2 gasoline is still lower than you paid a year ago you know, so there's, you know, it's that kind of stuff. I just don't think you said blunt instruments. I think they had to be ineffective in certain areas of the economy that people notice.
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure the economy is different than it used to be. There's a different structure. People are doing different kinds of work and and all that. I I spend my time reading a lot. I read a lot of research and sometimes I wonder why I do, Uh, you know, what I make money from is from trading the price action mm-hmm. and i might think that something should be doing whatever but it's doing what it's doing and i have to kind of go with that so when i report this stuff when i say for instance the forward curve in the interest rates here are looking for interest rates to keep rising for the rest yeah. of this year because the market sinks inflation is going to stay higher so therefore the central banks are going to keep pushing interest rates higher whether you think that's right or wrong it uh, doesn't matter in, t- if, you know, in, terms yeah. of, in terms of the price action. That's what the market is saying, and that's what I'm trading.
0: Well, we'll find out a lot more in the first couple of weeks of July again, Vic. In the meantime, go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And Vic, you go out and have a wonderful Canada Day weekend.
2: It's going to be a long weekend, Mike. I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm sure Barney is looking forward to a lot of walks this weekend.
0: Perfect. Just to let people know Barney is his wife. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's Victor's dog. The wonderful Gina is his wife. The very hospitable Gina, I might add, also. Yes, enjoy Barney. Thanks, Victor. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's goofy award. I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot on Money Talks is free speech, rather the assault on free speech, and so many examples uh, over the last seven years. One of my favorites took place in 2017, for example, when Toronto's Ryerson University administration announced it was cancelling an event called the stifling of free speech on university campuses because it was opposed by a group called No Fascist T.O. I mean, there's so many other examples. I mean, we've been chronicling them on money talks uh, about the no questions allowed attitude when it comes to the government narrative of the day. Uh, only the disingenuous, I think, or politically motivated refuse to acknowledge that we've seen a real shift in attitudes toward free speech. I and mean, we've got the Liberal government with the support of the NDP. Introducing Bill C-10, for example, which former commissioner of the CRTC, Peter Menzies, stated in quotes, doesn't just infringe on free expression, it constitutes a full-blown assault on it, and through it, the foundations of democracy. Now, the bill died on the order paper in the Senate, but the government didn't waste any time introducing Bill C-11, which has now passed which Canada's leading Internet expert, Michael Geist, Canada's research chair on the Internet and e-commerce, he concluded there is, in quotes, no doubt about the government's true intent with Bill C-11, retain power and flexibility to regulate user content. In other words, the power to censor. I mean, I know that millions of Canadians actually do support the censorship of statements and positions they don't agree with. But it also must be noted when they do it, they join the pro-censorship politicians, academics, media commentators, whoever, who push to adopt one of the principal characteristics of a political and social system that has proven inferior on every measure in the quality of life. But the point to understand is that the push to censor takes many forms. I mean, we had Judith Curry, well-known climate scientist, saying research and other professional activities are professionally rewarded only if they're channeled in certain directions, approved by a politicized academic establishment. I mean, not even the global pandemic reversed the trend of, in quotes, approved lines of inquiry. As uh, Dr. Marty McCurry, John Hopkins professor and surgeon, says, there's a modern-day McCarthyism in science whereby researchers who question certain sacred cow assumptions using the scientific method are bullied by their universities and worry about their future National Institute of Health funding. So that brings me to this week's Goofy. Encroaching on censorship? How about this? Consider this week that on the urging of Kimberly Murray, the independent special interlocutor on unmarked graves, Attorney General David Lemetti said he would consider criminalizing what he referred to as residential school denialism. In other words, any questions about any aspect of the government's official narrative regarding unmarked graves could be criminalized. No discussion, no debate, no questions allowed. Second example, one of the best-known Canadians in the world, Dr. Jordan Peterson, was in court this past week for a judicial review. He's against the College of Psychologists of Ontario. They accused Dr. Peterson of having lacked professionalism in some of his social media posts. The government regulator insisted that he undergo, in quotes, social media communications retraining at his own expense. That includes coaching for his Twitter commentary under the threat of having his license suspended. What's incredible about that, by the way, if you're not sure, is that the College of Psychologists acted because they'd received about a dozen complaints. None of them from a current or former patient that said his, har- uh, his views harmed them, And none of the complaints were from people he was commenting on in social media. I mean, this is an all-out attack on Jordan Peterson's right to express his views. The point is, whether you agree or disagree with what Dr. Peterson has to say on politics or any other issue, the question is whether a government-sanctioned body should be threatening him with professional sanctions or losing his license even because somebody doesn't like his views. As I said, there are many manifestations of the trend to censor. That's all the time we have this week. I just want to remind you, though, a great week to join us on Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, or join us for the free email blast on Mike's MoneyTalks.ca. And I give you a couple of reasons. Did you hear that the government, for example, now admits the 56,000 jobs promised in the taxpayer-funded $7 billion strategic innovation fund was launched six years ago that it was a typo that no one bothered to correct. Hey, by the way, just earlier when I was talking to Rob Levy, I, mistook, I, I misspoke. I I said it was the infrastructure bank, not the strategic innovation fund. Well, the infrastructure bank isn't making out much more. Canadian spokesman uh, for the bank quit, stating it was simply a front for the Chinese communists. But the innovation fund, $7 billion taxpayer funded, promised 56,000 jobs. Nope, not going to happen. 56,000 was a typo. Did you hear this one, though? Given all the coverage on the wildfires, that the investigation by the Coastal Fire Center concludes, in quotes, all 46 fires on Vancouver Island had been human-caused. For the mainland portion of the Coastal Fire Center, there was one natural cause fire, 31 human-caused. My point is, I don't think you probably heard these stories, but you hear a lot more like that on Money Talks Tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, or in our free email blast. So join us here, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen, especially on a beautiful Canada Day weekend. Proud Canadian, thanks for listening.